0: Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Doxson, and then I get to lead our, our college ministry. Excited to get to be with you this morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Uh, we're in the middle of a series right now through Romans chapters 5 through 8, really just looking at what, what the core message of Christianity is. Romans chapter 5, we did that in about four weeks, and what we really saw was God doing what only God can do, saving us sinners through Jesus Christ. Okay, we got to examine what that means. Romans chapter 6 through 8 now asks the question okay, how do we live? Now that we are saved from our sins, forgiven now and forever, how do we live? Specifically as it relates to sin, Romans chapter 6 and 7, and then the, the, just the suffering and the hardness of life, Romans chapter 8. And last week, Romans chapter 6, Paul, he kind of poses this question that we all ask okay, so if grace is so abundant, if I'm forgiven for everything I have done and will do by Jesus, then, then why even try to obey him? Why not, why not just keep sinning? If I'm gonna be forgiven, why not keep living in my life of sin? And if you remember what he said, he was basically like, hey, that's crazy because sin was leading you off a cliff. Your life of sin, it was ultimately leading to death and then Jesus came in and he puts you on a whole new road that leads to life. So so you can't continue in sin because you're united to Christ. Your salvation wasn't just a a ticket to heaven in the future, but it's new life right now. That was his answer last week. This week, it's it's, uh, the second half of chapter six, and he poses kind of a similar question. It's under the same topic, but it's a little bit different. Look at verse 14 of chapter six as it leads into verse 15. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? So Paul's saying sin is gonna have no power over you anymore because you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace, and then we have our question. But to understand the question, we gotta understand what does he mean by being under the law or under grace? Okay, so I need you to just kinda time travel with me for a moment back to sophomore year of high school, Spanish class. Okay, so I went to high school in Michigan, and we had like a foreign language requirement. I don't know if any of you guys had, had that. So we had to take three or uh, two years of a foreign language. In eighth grade, I took Spanish 1, thinking I was getting ahead of the curve, only to find out when I got to high school that it didn't count. Like, like, Spanish 1 counted, but that just put me in Spanish 2, which then made, as a sophomore, I had to take Spanish 3. So I ended up having to take three years of a foreign language instead of two. All right? So I show up to, to Spanish 3 as a sophomore, in high school, I've of course, I've totally forgotten all Spanish over the summer. I remember my, my Spanish name, Raimundo. That's about it. I'm sitting there in Spanish three, you know, feeling slightly optimistic, first day of school. And then to my, uh, first it was just a surprise. The, the teacher walks in and she just starts speaking in Spanish. Now you might be wondering, saying, like, why would you be surprised? It's Spanish class. Well, I was, I was used to, like, you know, she speaks a little English, then a little Spanish, and kind of helps me along. I'm surprised. I quickly become horrified when 20 minutes in, she's only spoke Spanish the whole class. Okay, So not only do I not know what, whatever it is that she's instructing us to do, but I'm starting to just think, I'm looking, I'm looking at her and kind of being like, you know, I'm not saying anything, but in my head, oh yeah, totally speaking Spanish, back to you. <laughs> looking around at my other classmates, wondering if they're as freaked out as I am. And it kind of just goes on like this during the class, and I start to realize she's, she's only speaking Spanish right now, and I don't know or remember any Spanish. Then she slides a paper onto our, uh, our desk, and I'm thinking, okay, finally, the syllabus, probably, right? It'll be in English. Now she's going to speak English to us and start to tell us like, how the class is going to go. Nope, all Spanish. I look at this, and I think, oh, this must be an exam, So an exam on my first day of Spanish three, and you can imagine I didn't do very well on the exam. She finally speaks English at the very end just to to grade it, and I got like a D or an F, and so I leave my first day of Spanish three already failing the class, okay? That class, like school is, it's based on, like, like the grade you receive, it's based on your performance. You're sitting alone at your desk, you've got your paper, and your grade, the outcome on the class is, is 100% dependent on how well you can perform. And so if you're great at math and you're in math class, you might be able to do, do well and get a good grade. For me in Spanish, it, my grade depended on me being fluent in Spanish, and I didn't know any Spanish. So you can imagine that this just crushed me. Now, in the same way, to be, to be under the law, to shift metaphors back to life a little bit, to be under the law means that your, your grade at the end of life is 100% based on you performing. Okay, the law is just shorthand for everything that God has revealed in the Bible about who he is and then how we're supposed to live in relation to him. And to be under the law says we have to perfectly obey that. We have to be perfectly, the Bible would say, righteous. We have to be fluent in righteousness. And it's not even okay to mess up just a little bit. Like we, we have to be fluent. We have to get an A plus on our record in order at the end of our lives to get a passing grade. A passing grade to be with God is is perfection. So to be under the law is to be sitting alone at your desk realizing it's on you, the standard is fluency, and you don't have a clue how to speak. Now, Back to Spanish class. Let's imagine I'm sitting there in Spanish class feeling totally hopeless. And then, you know, in some strange twist of events, Jesse Anselman, who is our, our worship director, is all of a sudden, he's not in Iowa anymore, he's, he's in Michigan with me in my class. And he's taking class. Let's also imagine that Jesse is a great student. Um, don't laugh at that because he's, you know, he is, he's a very smart man. Let's imagine he's, he's fluent in Spanish. Jesse's sitting there. The teacher, in an act of mercy, says, you know what? I'm going to allow this class to be taken with a partner. So I look over at Jesse and I say, Jesse, you want to be my partner? He graciously receives me. And now I sit there with with Jesse. And now I know that Jesse, with his his Spanish fluency, is going to get an A plus in this class. And at the end of the day, when we turn in our paper for our grade, his name will be at the top. My name will be there too. But we're probably not going to use any of the answers that I come up with, right? It's going to be totally based on him. This is now class switching from being under the law to being under grace. I get credit for Jesse's grade. This is Christianity. That, that was Romans chapter 5, right? We, we are sinful. We are, we are not fluent in the ways of being human, which would be to actually rightly relate to God in righteousness. But God in his mercy and his grace, he sends Jesus. Jesus lives the perfect life that we should have lived. He dies on the cross for our sins rises from the grave, victorious over sin and death, proving that we've actually been forgiven. And then God's offer to us, his mercy to us, is to come underneath grace, to come under Christ, and we actually get credit for his life. So it takes humility, right? We say, I'm gonna trust in him. I'm not gonna sit at my desk and try to figure this out. I'm gonna trust in Jesus and his righteousness. We get to partner with him and be under grace. Okay, so look back at, at Paul's question in verse 14. Okay, so since we're not under the law anymore, but under grace, shouldn't we just keep sinning? This, this is the question back in Spanish, okay, Spanish class. If I'm in Spanish class and I get that deal, I'm like, all right, Jesse, I'm going to go take a nap in the back of the classroom. You fill out all the right answers. Make sure you write my name down. Or maybe a little step beyond that, I'm going to sit with him, and I'm not going to really try to learn Spanish, I'll keep speaking English, because I know that that your grade is going to be what counts, not mine. If my grade is dependent on Jesse's performance and not mine, why even try to perform? If At the end of your life, your standing before God, which it is, is going to be dependent on Jesus' righteousness, not yours. Why even try to be righteous? Do you see Paul's question there? That's the question. Let's look at his answer. It's a short one to start, and then he's going to unpack it. What does he say in verse 15? No, right? By no means. That is absolutely crazy. And what Paul is going to argue in verses 15 through 23 is actually the opposite. But when we come under grace, rather than leading us to disobedience, it leads us to obedience. We don't disobey because we're under grace. We actually obey. Why? Let's find out, okay? So there's going to be three reasons in this passage. The first one's going to be the, kind of the most involved and the, and the longest. The second two will be, will be shorter. So let's read the passage, and then we'll, we'll walk through them. All right, verse 15. So what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. So he's going to use some metaphors here and be like, let me help you try and understand this, what this means. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so why does, why does grace actually lead us to obedience? Point number one is that under grace, we're actually given a new master and he demands Obedience. So we're set free from slavery to sin, and we're given a new master. And so I know like that language of master and slavery, we immediately recoil against that as as modern Americans. My wife has a has a big pink coffee mug that says, Boss, lady, I'm not bossy, I am the boss. So I get it. And she is the bo- She's a great boss. Love that she's the boss. And Americans, you know, our, our whole country's built on this idea of freedom and liberty. Right, But isn't it interesting to think that for a nation that is, is built on the idea of the equality of all human beings, liberty and justice for all, freedom, that almost immediately, and actually before it was actually founded, us free people who came over from Europe, we start to enslave others, the people that lived here, and then eventually people from Africa. How free were we really? America, a country built on freedom, has, has actually never really been free. Bob Dylan, he tells us why. So Bob Dylan is a throwback if you're young. he's a singer back in the 70s, 80s, something like that. Here's, here's what Bob Dylan says. Bob Dylan says, the question isn't, you know, do you serve someone? Is somebody your master? It's who do you serve? This is his song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So his point is, no matter how much of a boss you are in life, no matter how many people report to you, ultimately what you're doing with your life has to be in service to something bigger than yourself. You've got to serve somebody, no matter how important you are. And, and look at verse 16, isn't this what Paul's saying? He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. You, you are a slave to the one whom you obey. You can tell who you're serving by how you're living. The way that you're living your life shows who your master is. He continues, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is what Dylan was saying, either, evil, either the devil or God. Uh, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he unpacks this more. You could go back and look at it later if you want. But he basically says, like, from the day that you're born as a human, you enter into basically uh, this mass of humanity who is actually following their master, the devil. And he says, you know how you can know if you're following the devil? If you're living according to the patterns of this world. He, he's, he's your master. You're born like that. You've, you've got to serve somebody. So the question isn't will you serve, it's who will you serve. There's a hip-hop group in Portland called Beautiful Eulogy, and I did think about wrapping this to you, but it was going to take a little bit too long, so I'm just going to read you some selected lines. Listen to them. I'm, I'm sure that they're basing this off of Romans 6. Listen to them explain our situation. We were born into a system, automatic slaves and addicts, and whether you believe it, it's just a matter of whether you consider it compatible or problematic. But if you honestly acknowledge the logical conclusion, for you to choose your destiny is a delusion. This is Paul. You've got to, you have to serve somebody. Some, some master is controlling you no matter how free you feel. Because when you examine the general system of living, it proves who your true master is and who you're enslaved to. And it's been true that since the fall, so since humanity's fall into sin, Genesis three, we've all been taught a false view of freedom, and a rebellious mind recoils and is inclined to deny him—that's God—and to bind him with the ties of treason. So, sin, so what sin has done is it's come into the world and it's lied to us. It's told us that we're free. The hook is, hey, hey, do whatever it is that feels good to you. Be your own master when really sin is your master and pulling you along. They go on and they say this. This leads to the punchline of the song. So either rebellion or righteousness both lead to the inescapable mark of either eternal life or eternal death. Whether you're bound to sin or bound to obey. Either way, we're all slaves. One kills, one saves. We all serve somebody. The question isn't, will I obey a master? It's, which master will I obey? But Remember point number one. Point number one is, grace leads to obedience, because grace actually gives us a new master who demands our obedience, and that master is God. Kind of throughout the whole passage, Paul is basically saying, you used to be a slave of sin, and then in verse 16, he says, now you're a slave of obedience, Verses 18 and 19, now you're a slave of of righteousness. And then finally, he sums it up, verse 22, you're a slave of God. From slaves of sin to slaves of God. So just look at me. Obedience to sin is killing you. Obedience to sin is leading you off a cliff. God in his grace has made it possible for you to obey a new master who's better. David Foster Wallace was an American writer and university professor, not a Christian. He gave a, a famous commencement speech to Kenyon College in 2005, and he has some really great insight into this. And remember, he's not a Christian, so imagine we're sitting here, at you're, you're graduating from college, okay? You're about to go out into the world, you're thinking about your job, you've got your degree, you're imagining like, what am I going to live for? What am I going to accomplish? This is what, imagine being there as Foster Wallace says this in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. So in the day-to-day trenches, like, okay, let's, let's sit around a coffee shop and, and debate about whether or not there's a God, but when you actually get down to living, and you have to choose to actually try to live this life, there's no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And when he says worship, he's referring to the same thing that Dylan and Paul are talking about with, with serving. He would equate serving somebody with, with worshiping them. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of a god or spiritual type of thing to worship, whether it be JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some other set of ethical principles, listen, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So again, he's, he's clearly not, he's not a Christian. He hasn't quite figured it out, but he's got his finger on something that, you know what, there might be something to this like worshiping something that's bigger than you outside of yourself idea. Because what I've noticed, guys, as you launch out into your careers, is that anything else you serve, anything else you obey, anything else you live for, whoever or whatever else you worship, it's gonna eat you alive. Here's what he means. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap in real meaning for life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Anyone? Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Anyone? Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. This is Foster Wallace talking to college graduates saying, anything else you worship, it's going to eat you alive. But what does Paul say? Verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have been set free and have become slaves of righteousness. Worship God and you'll be free. You'll be free from what enslaved you. And how how does this work? How How does all of a sudden becoming a slave to God set you free? Why does worshiping God not eat you alive? Romans chapter five. In Romans chapter five, what do we see? We saw God sending his son, Jesus, not to eat us alive and destroy us, but to be destroyed for us. Jesus at the cross is being destroyed for our sins. He's being eaten alive for you. Jesus, he came under the weight of the law. So remember, you're, you're in Spanish class and you're sitting there with your sheet of paper and you can't do it, you can't speak Spanish. You will not pass the class. You will be condemned. Jesus, he enters the cross on your behalf. He pays the penalty for your sin. Everything else you worship in this life will eat you alive. Jesus, he was destroyed for you, so God owns us. This is what it means for God to be our master. Paul, he, he crystallizes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what he says. You are not your own. You are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about the way they use their body, specifically as it relates to sexuality. And as they were were wanting to, to be their own master of their body and do whatever they wanted sexually, Paul says, Jesus forgave you for that? God bought you, you are not your own, he is your your master. God owns you, and he demands obedience. He demands obedience. But when I say demands obedience, I mean two things. The first, God, he he demands obedience, yes, because of of his authority, right? You are are not your own, for you were bought. He bought you, He, he owns you. So our obedience is, is kind of pulled along by the fact that, yeah, like God is, God is my master. He's my new authority. But that's not all. That isn't all. God owns you, and he demands obedience because of his authority, but also, even greater so, because of his love. It says you were bought with a price, the price of Jesus on the cross. And so I don't want to steal the thunder from Romans chapter 8, but in a couple weeks, he's going to say, you're, yes, you are a slave to God. He's your master. But even more than that, this is what Rob was pointing to, you're, you're a son and a daughter of God. He's your father. He's adopted you. Obey him. Obey him. So this is the type of demanding obedience in terms of just, you, you see the radical love of God for you on the cross. You see the open arms of a father, and the way that he demands obedience from you is not just on his authority, but on his love. He's, he woos us in to obedience. He woos us. This is why grace leads to obedience, because we get a new master. And so we see that it's not as if we're in Spanish class and we see the kid who's gonna get the perfect grade and we bully him into letting us get his homework. That's not what we do with Jesus. Jesus stands up on the cross and he purchases us for God. He redeems us from our life of sin. And we see him and we want in on that. We want him. I look over at Jesse and I say, I wanna, I, I, I wanna be in on this Spanish thing. I wanna learn. Would you, would you let me come underneath your grace, but how does that happen? Because maybe some of you that are sitting here in the room, you're like, "Yeah, that hasn't happened for me. I don't. I, I maybe I understand in general what it means that God is the authority, but I don't. I don't necessarily know that I want Him." Others of us in the room might be like, "I do want God. I just don't know exactly how or when that happened. I can kind of trace it out and think back to my story." Well, point number two is that grace leads to obedience because we're given a transformed heart that actually desires obedience. God in his grace, he changes our heart. So the the deepest problem with sin is that we desire to serve destructive masters and we don't desire God or obedience. That's the deepest problem about our sin. It expresses itself in all kinds of external ways, but the real root of the problem is we don't desire God and we willfully follow God the devil. I couldn't care less about Spanish. I would literally dropped out after day one and I took French one. Our hearts don't desire God. But God in his grace, he solves that problem by transforming our hearts so we actually want to obey God. Look down at verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God, grace, we didn't muster this up. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. So we've become something different. We've been transformed. We didn't just kind of gradually improve, but we went from being one thing to now being something completely different, a slave of righteousness. How? It's in that middle part. By becoming obedient to the heart. what, is, what does that mean? How does God how does God change our hearts? So it's been well documented that uh, Caitlin and I just had another baby. He's about six weeks old. If you're new, I've got a two year old and then we got this six week old. And dads, I mean, an underplayed thing that we don't get to talk about is just, just how difficult it is to be a dad in the middle of the night, right? I mean, we have to sit there and the baby starts crying and needs to be fed and we can't do anything about it. Like I can't go feed, feed the baby and it, it disrupts my sleep. I'm laying there in bed And I hear these noises and I'm just like, like, I can't, I can't help. I need, I need my wife to, okay, so I I don't exactly treat it like that. But here's how it usually goes down. I'll be sleeping, sound asleep. It's like I forget that we have a kid right before I'm about to fall asleep. And I'm dreaming, you know, dreaming about donuts or whatever it is that's interesting me at the moment. And I'm sleeping and the baby will wake up and be crying and Caitlin will, will uh, try to wake me up and she'll be like, Ronnie, get up. Ronnie, Ronnie, nothing, I'm just sleeping. Ronnie, Ronnie! And then I'm up, and next thing I know, I'm, it's dark, I'm holding a baby in my hands, and I'm just looking at him, and I'm just looking around in a room all by myself in the darkness. I don't know how I got here, but I heard an authoritative voice, loud enough to wake me up from sleep and it moved me, and it was a little bit bewildering, 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 but here I am in a brand new situation wondering how I got here. If you look at verse 17, when it says we've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, obedient from the heart its actually all one word, and I don't know much about Greek, but it's one Greek word called hupakau, and that word means that your heart heard an authoritative call. Like, we didn't just become obedient because we learned some new things. We're like, oh, I'm gonna try it. Like, your heart was woken up from the dead. That's why some of you, when you try to share your story about becoming a Christian, you're like, I am totally different now. And I can, ca-, like, there was a time and like, I, I did not like going to church. It wasn't super interesting to me. Like, Jesus, the gospel, but then something happened to me. And here I am and I'm, and I'm, and I'm changing. And what, you got a new heart. God's voice—it reached out and it woke up your heart. Your heart that that you know you you you're a you're a kid and you're hearing about Jesus and nothing's happening. I love you. I forgive you. You're in danger. Your sin is going to kill you. That addiction sounds fun now, but it's it's going to end you. You hear nothing. And then one day, through a friend, through a sermon through a thought that gets recalled in your brain from something someone said one time. Wake up! I love you. You're a sinner, you're in danger. I'm your savior, I forgive you. Come home, I'm your father and your heart is awake. This idea of us needing a new heart, it's from the beginning of the Bible. In in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is, is giving this extremely long message to the Israelites as they're about to go into the promised land. And he, he kind of rehashes out the Ten Commandments, the law, at the beginning. And he tells them, like, you got to obey the, If you obey this, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. But then later on in the message, he starts to indicate that he knows that they're going to disobey because he knows that their hearts are messed up and broken. So then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, he has this prophecy where he points forward to the future and he says this, One day, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. You guys, you see the the law, it's like an MRI machine. God's revealed nature and how we're supposed to live. It's It's like we're laying under an MRI machine and it's telling us what's wrong with us very clearly, but it has absolutely no power to heal us. And what Moses is saying here is that God is going to have to perform surgery on your heart. That's why he uses the word circumcision. That's a, a surgery. He's going to have to give you a new heart. The law can tell you that you're sick, but it can't heal you. Jesus, by his grace, can. So notice, I said we get a, a, a transformed heart. I didn't say we get a transformed heart that perfectly obeys. Okay, so we're new. And if you just became a Christian, you're like me, just kind of holding the baby in the dark and you're like, I'm, I am somewhere brand new right now. I don't know how I got here. But we actually have to learn obedience. We have to learn obedience. The metaphors that Paul uses starting in verse 19 are all about process. So in the, re- the rest of these verses here, he talks about basically rehab from slavery as one metaphor and then gardening as another metaphor indicating that By his grace, we can obey, but it's a process. So it's as if God says, you're you're free from slavery, but your old master. You're still going to remember his voice, and it's going to call out to you. I've given you a new heart. I've planted new desires, new fruit in the garden of your heart, but there's going to be weeds that are going to sprout up. So point number three, and we're going to go into that, is just that we experience a better life because of obedience, but it's a process. Why does grace lead to obedience? Because we actually start to experience it, and it's better. But it takes a process. So first, obedience—it's kind of like rehab. We're set free from slavery to sin. That—that's who enslaved us. But now we're kind of—we're in this like safe house. Whatever you're you're picturing being set free from addiction, slavery—we're we're safe. We're not there anymore. The old master has no power over us anymore. But we're still tempted. We still remember our old habits. We ask ourselves the question of like, am I ever really going to change? There's good news in these verses. The good news I see is that the the momentum, just the, the rut of sin that we all developed going in the wrong direction, in the simple direction, momentum works the same way in the opposite direction. The habits that you developed over your life for sin, you gain so much momentum there. They work the same way in the other direction. Look at verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we used to just present ourselves. We used to just follow the master of sin, and it led to more and more lawlessness. It just kind of reproduced. And he's saying, now that you're set free, let's start doing the hard work of rehab working in the other direction. And as you do that, it's gonna lead to sanctification. So if your whole life you've been enslaved to to comparison, and you you walk out in the world and you immediately view other people as competition, if you feel better than them, then you feel great about yourself. If you feel worse than them, then you feel inferior. If that is just the way that you've trained your mind and your heart to work, you are set free from having to do that. You have the approval of God the approval of Jesus. His opinion matters now more than anybody else's. But you need to start living in the other direction. You need to start gaining momentum. And instead of comparison, you now start to view people with, with compassion and love. Rather than looking at people as competition and saying like, how can I defeat them? How can I be better than them? We now view them with compassion and love and say, say how can we serve them? So momentum comes from new desires, new heart, plus new habits, plus time. And obedience is going to take a while, guys. It's like rehab. We really are free. Momentum really is possible, but it takes time. The, the second metaphor that Paul gives us is, is gardening. He talks about fruit, if you saw it down there. So, So it's hard, but it's rewarding, okay? We start to look into our hearts and we see sin for what it is. We see it as as just nasty weeds, stuff that we want to get rid of. Look back at verse 20. It says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were free, You you felt free. But the thing you were actually free from was living as the human being that God created you to be. That was the trick of sin. But what fruit were you getting at that time? From the things of which you are now ashamed? When you felt so free, what was the fruit that was actually coming up? What's that answer for you? What's the answer right now? What fruit are you getting from from the pattern of sin? I know the general pattern for me is, is first, fun in the moment, feels good in the moment, feel free in the moment, devastating, total letdown in the end. And that's what Paul says. He says, for the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We start to see new fruit. We expel the weeds. Sin can only ever, sin can only ever lead to death obedience can only ever lead to life so we got to expel sin and we got to plant new fruit and we experience it as better if you remember augustine from last week i read you this quote this is just a snapshot of a life that has experienced what it's like to to expel sin and plant new fruit this is what he says how sweet it once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which i had once feared to lose You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place. That's the voice of of obedience that is gaining momentum. How sweet it was to get rid of those fruitless joys that I once feared to lose. This is a glimpse of a better life that comes from obedience. So in conclusion, you know, what what do we say then? Since we're not under the law, but we're under grace, should we just keep sinning? No. That's crazy, right? It's crazy. Grace leads to obedience because we, we've got a new master and he demands obedience, and he's not just our master, but he's our father. Grace gives us a new heart that actually wants to obey, actually desires it, and grace helps us experience a new life that we actually see is better than our old life, and we start to gain momentum. And so my last question for, for all of us is just, where do we start? I mean, this might have been just like a whirlwind of, of inventory into your life right now. And, and where do we start? In my house in Madison, I as it got warmer out and the plants started to grow up again, I would drive home week after week and just see just weeds growing everywhere, things that I don't feel like I have time to, to take care of, things I don't feel like I know how to do. And I started to feel the dissatisfaction of like, I've got to do something about this, right? Like I've got to, I've got to get my yard in, in, in shape. I don't even exactly know what that would look like, but I've got to do something. But I felt powerless to do it. I had no momentum, no momentum at all. I kept telling myself like tomorrow I'll do it or next week I'll do it and then I would run out of time. But then you know what happened? One day, one weekend, my, my family showed up, my mom and dad, they came to watch our, our son Jack while we were out of town. And, and they gave me Momentum. We started working on the yard. So they showed up and I at first had to, I had to humble myself to let them help me. But then they started to see weeds that I didn't see and they helped me pull them. They started to, to plant things and kind of like orchestrate the yard in ways that I didn't know how to and I, and I let them help me with that. I was up on a ladder trying to trim off branches from a big tree in my yard with like this flimsy little saw I found in my garage. And then my neighbor across the street, Bob, he comes out with this monstrosity of a, of a, a big log with a saw at the end called a pole saw. If you guys ever heard of a pole saw. And he, he gives me this better tool and I start to trim off branches in my yard. I get, mo- I get momentum. My yard looks great now. It does. And maybe you in your life you look at it and it, just, it looks like I was viewing my yard and you feel like I, don't, I just don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to start. You need to humble yourself and ask for help. The help's gonna come from, from inside of this room. There's people in here that, that can probably see the weeds in your life that you can't see and they know how to pull them because they've been there before and they've done it. You're trying to figure out like, what, is, what does Christian fruit look like in this area of my marriage, or in this area of my parenting, or for me as a as a student, like like how do I? What do like jealousy? I know that like the back of my hand. What do I do instead? There's somebody in your connection group. There's somebody in this room that that knows. They know how to grow that fruit. If you've got some some real something that takes a lot of expertise. Something real nasty, like the crazy branches I had growing growing out of there. And you're using like a tool that is just never going to work. It's never going to work. It's never going to work. But somebody in here has, has a better tool, a better way to go about it. The point I'm making is, is when I ask the question of, of where do we start, we have to start somewhere because sin's going to kill us if we don't kill it. But you won't be able to kill it on your own. Fighting sin, it's a community project. Obedience to God is a community project. And maybe the turning point for some of us in this room is looking around and asking for help. God, just want to uh, give us all space to just think about our sin for a moment, things that you've brought up, and God, as we, as we uh, stand here and sit here in silence, would you speak to us specifically as our Father about that sin? God, would you bring to mind just the the new life that's offered to us in Jesus? Give us the assurance that that our sin was nailed to the cross, that we bear it no more, that we don't go to work on the, the yard that is our heart, holding the weight of condemnation and guilt and shame, but actually freedom. God, warm our hearts even now to to love you and want to serve you. Help us to enjoy the fruit of obedience. God, and give us the courage to reach out to to help one another in this fight against sin and this fight for joy and obedience in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.